Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we will feature one of the members of our teaching team here at North Shore Vineyard. This is Penny Murray. She's going to be speaking on a passage from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The title of this message is Grace Doesn't Throw Stones. She'll be looking at the story of the woman caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. Really good stuff here. Hey, we got a lot of exciting things coming up at North Shore Vineyard, so check us out on the web at northshorevineyard.org. We've got Fall for Art coming up in a few weeks. We've also got a new class we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights called Renew, where we're going to look at what it means to be the body of Christ. That'll go on for about four weeks, five weeks in mid-October. So, hope you can make it out to one of those things. Check it out on the web for more info. Thanks for listening. Let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Hi. Okay, hey. There we go. Woo! It seems like it's that thing on top. Is okay. that it? Well, I would mess it up. Gosh, I was afraid I was going to have to yell at y'all for the next half hour. Well, hey guys, good morning. Good morning. Crispin said, I'm Penny, and uh, I don't know, maybe about a Four weeks ago, we were at our teaching team breakfast, and he asked for each of us to, to take a Sunday before the end of the year. So, of course, I run home, and I grab my Bible, and I'm looking to see what's coming up in John. And when I saw that this passage was coming up, I totally cherry-picked it. I mean, I'm, like, emailing frantically, I want this one, I want this one. Um, it's one of my favorites, so I'm really excited um, that we get to look at this today. <clears throat> but before... You know, we get into Jesus. I wanted to tell you one of my own stories. And that's the story of my first date with Brian. This one can get long, so we're just going to do the movie trailer version of this. Excuse me, gosh. But our first date started out, um, like most first dates, the plan was to go see a movie. But what happened was when we pulled up into the movie theater parking lot, we very soon found ourselves with two extra passengers. Two men in the backseat of my car each holding a gun to the back of our heads. Yeah, yeah. So instead of seeing the movie, we decided to, you know, go get kidnapped and robbed. Brian just, I mean, you know how to show a girl a good time. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. The evening took several twists and turns. My favorite moment, though. Uh, the men in the back seat, they're distracted. They're, they're doing something else. And Brian looks over at me across the car, and he just mouths because we can't let the bad guys hear. And he says, we need to get out of here. But what I saw, what I thought he said, was I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and I just, I had this picture of him, like, opening the door and rolling out into the street, and I'm driving these two guys around downtown Hammond. Um, it's not what he did. It's, I don't think we'd be married right now if... Uh, if that's how it played out. Um, I'm not sure either one of us thought we were going to be alive for much longer that night. But thankfully, when the guys told us to drive outside of town, at that point they got out of the car. And very soon we found ourselves in the safety of the Hammond Police Station. And we were each handed a piece of paper. And they asked us to write down our story. And let me tell you, that is exactly what I did. I wrote this multi-page narrative account. Reads exactly like a movie script. I still have it. I set the scene. I introduced the characters, especially Gunman 1 and Gunman 2. 
I gave all the dialogue, all the action. Every moment of tension is written down. I, I told the story. And I think this was really important for me to begin to process what happened to us, to, to start to make sense of it. Because for me, stories are just foundational. Um, I, I grew up in a family of storytellers. I was around theater and dramatic arts as a kid, went on to college, got a communications degree. I, I love movies. I love books. I mean, I just I love a good story. But what I love most of all is just, just to get to sit down with somebody and listen to them tell their stories. And I, I like to tell mine because that's how you get to know somebody. I mean, I don't, I don't really want to see your resume. I want to hear your stories because they're more than just entertainment. I mean, when, when you hear a good story, it changes you. You know, it just, it becomes part of you. And I think, I think that's why the stories we find in the Gospels about Jesus are so powerful. Because it's in the story. That's, that's where we encounter Jesus. That's where we get to know him. You know, the writer of John, he picks up on this towards the end of the book. And he says that Jesus had done many other things. And that of all of them, if they were all written down, he supposed not even the entire world would have room for the books that would be written. But the stories he recorded, he did so that we could believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. So today we're going we're gonna to look at, it may be my favorite story in the Bible, and I'm really excited about that. You can find it in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But I'm not going to read the passage today. Uh, what I want to do is I just want to tell you the story. I want to tell it the way I imagine the early Christians were telling it, the way I would have told it if I had been there. So the story, it starts out with Jesus teaching in the temple courts. So let's just set the scene. It's early in the morning. The sun and the heat are rising, and Jesus is seated on the ground in the dirt, and the crowds are just seated all around him. And he's just talking to them. He's, he's telling them about the love of God. But then I imagine that off in the distance, this faint sound of crying begins to be heard. And it's getting louder. And it's, it's getting closer. Until you can make out that it's this, it's this desperate wailing. It's a pleading and the people in the crowd, they begin to whisper. They're, they're looking around. Where is this coming from? Until it becomes so overwhelming that even Jesus just has to stop mid-sentence. And he looks up. And at that point, this group of religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're in their fine, fancy white robes. And they just come pushing through the crowds. And with them, they're dragging this woman this crying woman, and they make their way through, and they just toss her before Jesus onto the ground. And I imagine that she was probably barely clothed. She's covering herself as best she can, and she is just weeping. And her face is just covered with tears and dirt. And at that point, one of the Pharisees steps forward. And I'm sure in a very clear, very strong voice so that everyone present can hear. 
He says, teacher, this woman, she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, the way the story is recorded in John, it makes it very clear that what the Pharisees were doing is they were setting a trap for Jesus. They were not concerned with the law of Moses or this woman. What they want is to get Jesus backed into a corner with no way out. They are sick and tired of this rebel leader in his movement and all the reports that they're hearing from all over Israel. And today, they plan to shut this down because they've anticipated any answer that Jesus can give. And I'm sure, I'm sure they assume that Jesus is going to say what he's been saying all along. And that's that, hey, we need to forgive her. We need to show her grace because that's just who Jesus is. But if he does this, the Pharisees are going to be able to come back and say that Jesus is claiming to be above the law, that his words override the law of Moses. And at this point, they're going to have a way to accuse him. They could arrest him. They could possibly kill him for this. But let's just say, let's say on the off chance, Jesus goes the other way. What if Jesus says, well, I mean, obviously she's guilty. Yeah, you're right. The law says, mm -hmm. she needs to face the consequences. So let's get our stones. Let's say Jesus goes that way. He's going to lose all credibility with his followers because the people who are following Jesus, these are the people on the outside. These are the tax collectors, the mob bosses, the prostitutes. These are the people who are on the margins and they know, they know they've messed up and they're listening to Jesus tell them that they are welcomed, that they're forgiven, that they are invited to be a part of this new thing that God is doing. And if Jesus, if he condemns this woman, he's going to lose all credibility. He's going to lose his following. He's going to be a hypocrite. So either way, the Pharisees, oh, they've got him. And I can just see. Can't you just see how haughty they must have been? This gleam of triumph in their eyes as they now just, they just stand back and wait. Which way is this going to play out? Let's see what he does. But Jesus, he does something um, really unexpected he just looks down, and he's sitting on the ground, and he just begins to write in the dirt with his finger. And, you know, I've, I've heard the story a lot in church, and I've heard and I've read all kinds of explanations and theories for what it was that Jesus was writing. But the funny thing is, the story doesn't tell us. But what I think we can take away is that when Jesus is backed into a corner— when things look really bad, when it looks like there is just no way out of this, Jesus doesn't lose his cool. Jesus just kind of takes a moment, just takes a moment, and he waits, and he listens, and maybe, maybe he's just doodling. <laughs> but the story tells us that the Pharisees have to speak to him again. So that first guy, I bet he, you know, he clears his throat. <clears> throat> Let's try this again. Uh, Jesus, this woman, she's guilty. You know what the law says we should do to such a woman. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus, he doesn't even look up. He just keeps riding in the dirt. It's as if he doesn't even hear them. And again and again, the Pharisees have to keep coming back, keep speaking to him. And I would bet that the emotion 
starts to come out in their voices, they're getting a little frustrated. They're getting irritated. I mean, these are the Pharisees. No one ignores the Pharisees. And I would bet you that everyone in the temple courts that day, all eyes are on this scene. Everyone's watching. Everyone's waiting. What is Jesus going to say? Until finally, Jesus lifts himself up just a bit. And he looks at them and he says, Whichever one of you hasn't sinned, you throw the first stone. And then he just looks down and he continues to write in the dirt. Okay, what happened just here? This is really risky. And I'll tell you why. What I think Jesus is doing is he is calling them back to the Old Testament law that talks about this offense. So let's talk about it. Adultery would have been a man having an affair with a married or an engaged woman. And under the Old Testament law, this was a capital offense. Now, capital punishment. There were many safeguards surrounding capital punishment. This wasn't something that happened easily. Definitely didn't happen often. It was very difficult to convict someone of a capital crime. So what would have had to happen? First, the man and the woman would have to be seen in the the very act. There could be no other explanation for what was happening by at least two male Jewish witnesses in good standing in the community. And these two witnesses would have to come forward. They would have to give very explicit testimony, and their accounts would have to match exactly. You could not be convicted on circumstantial evidence or just by suspicion. It was very hard to do. You would have had to have some really creepy, you know, surveillance going on. It would be hard. Next, the woman and the man would have to be brought to justice. And I think this is, this is really key here to what's going on. It's very interesting that the Pharisees did not bring the guy along. And you know, that's always been my first question when I read the stories. Where's the guy? I mean, come on. But they didn't bring him. And I would even speculate that perhaps this was all part of the setup. This was all part of the trap to set things up for Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps the Pharisees and the guy were in on this together to make this happen. That's just, I'm just saying. And these witnesses, the people who come forward to testify, you couldn't just condemn somebody. You had to be willing to throw the stones. You were going to participate in the execution. So that definitely raises the stakes about coming forward. And you couldn't condemn someone for a crime that you were a part of because you would be just as guilty. So what Jesus is doing here, he's calling them out. He's saying, guys, I know, I know what's going on here. I see straight through you. I see your hearts. I see your motives. And I know what's going on. And you are guilty. And when the Pharisees, when they heard Jesus' answer, the stones, they just begin to fall to the ground. First, the oldest of the Pharisees dropped his stones. Followed by the rest. They were guilty. They knew it. Jesus knew it. And now, everyone in the temple courts knows it today. And they just turned and they walked away without a word. And then Jesus... He's he's left there to clean up the mess that they have made. And he turns to this woman 
And he says, where are they? Does anyone accuse you? And she says, no, no one. And he tells her, and neither do I. Now go and stop living like this. Don't you just want to, like, pump your fist in the air? Yes! We love this story. We love that Jesus holds this woman's life in his hands, and he leads with grace and forgiveness, and he just shuts down those accusers. And then he follows it up to her with a new way to live, where he tells her, you're better than this. You are worth so much more than this. It doesn't have to be like this. Your story can change right now. We love the story. And I think when we sit with it, we can begin to find ourselves in the story. And, and for me, I see myself with the Pharisees because for so long, I was trying really hard to somehow be good enough for God. And truly, guys, I I wanted to please God, but what happened is I got very caught up in what I call um, competitive Christianity. And I had this list of do's and this much, much, much longer list of don'ts. And I'm just, I'm trying to to follow the list and just somehow be perfect because that's going to make God like me. Then, then I'll know I'm in his in crowd, you know? And on top of that, I really craved the approval and the praise of my faith community. And you mix that together with a very type A personality, and things get very performance-based. And I found myself uh, wearing a mask to try to please God and to please others. And you can get good. You can get good at wearing the mask. I mean, honestly, I'm not even sure I knew I was doing it at times. You just think you're doing what you're supposed to. But then that mask, it starts to slip just a little. And what happens when our masks start to slip is sometimes we just start looking for someone else to point the finger at. If, if, if I can just throw someone else under the bus, let's just judge someone else. Well, then I still look pretty good. I mean, I, I'm better than most people. Certainly, I'm better than them. God, thank you for not making me like them. We can, we can become so obsessed with just how we appear. You know, Jesus, he told the Pharisees once, he said, Oh, you guys, you're gorgeous. I mean, on the outside. You're like this beautiful gold and jeweled goblet. You're gorgeous. But on the inside, you're just, you're full of dirt and dung. And we can do this. We we can become so consumed with how we appear that we don't take a look at what's going on inside. And then I think, I think all of us, we can find ourselves with this woman. Because in different ways, we've all been caught in the wrong tent. We all have those things that we just, we don't want exposed. All of the ways in which we think, ah, we're not good enough, we don't measure up. Our disappointments, our failures, the things we regret, the things we struggle with. 
we all have this shadow side. And then we all have those moments where our shadow is exposed. And we need to know, how will God respond to us in those moments? For a very long time, I pictured God to be like the Pharisees. I saw him as kind of angry, very stern, very judgmental, just disappointed, kind of grumpy. And he's up there, and we're down here. And he's got this bag of cold, hard stones, and he's just looking down, and he's just waiting, waiting for us to screw up. And when all this came to the surface for me, I was, was going through a very difficult time. And I had all these really big questions, really tough questions about God, about faith, about doubts, about Christianity. And I was just tormented. And what do you do? What do you do when you're having a hard time? You call your mother. (laughs) And my mom is awesome. And so I'm on the phone with my mom. And I just, I can't hold it back anymore. I'm just... I'm throwing up on the table. I mean, I'm just, I'm telling her all the things that are just eating me alive about this. All of my questions. And my mom says, Penny, I think, I think you just need to hit pause. I think you need to just take a break. I think you need to just enjoy God. (sighs) Enjoy God? I'm not even sure I like God. I mean, that's really where I was at. The theologian Greg Boyd, he talks about how we picture God. And he says this. He says, the way you conceive of God, and even more importantly, the way you imagine God, is the single most important factor in your life. For our relationship with God is mediated through our mental images of him. How we imagine God thus determines the sort of relationship you will have with him, And the sort of difference this relationship is going to make in your life. The way you imagine God also has the single strongest influence on how you interpret the events in your life and what you think about yourself as well as what you think about others. I think he nails this. And I'll tell you what began to change the way I think about God. It was two, two big things happened. First, God started to put relationships in my life where I experienced the grace of God in very real, very tangible ways. And the next, I started to just read the Gospels. And honestly, I tried to just wipe the slate clean of years and years of church. And I tried to just start over and just try to look at this from a fresh start. And what happened is I really realized I like Jesus. I mean, it sounds corny, but I mean, I really like him. He's awesome. And I feel safe with him. And I trust him. And and I stopped trying to be perfect. And instead, I just tried to be honest. I started to let him in. 
And that's why, as we've read through John this year, we keep coming back over and over again to this idea that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And it's here in these stories that the heart of God is revealed. And it's why this story in particular is so important. Because if we let it, if we let it seep into our hearts and our minds, then we will know how God will treat us when we think we've blown it. When we think we are just at our lowest. Because grace doesn't throw stones. Grace in that moment, when we think it just... It can't get any worse. That's when grace comes along and it just it wraps its arms around you. And then it allows you to face all those things that you hide, that you deny, that you avoid and repress. Grace allows us to face our shadows. And it does what stones could never do because, I'm sorry, stones aren't going to solve anyone's problems. When we talk about this idea of sin, we have to start to realize that sin is the symptom of a much deeper, much larger problem. And what we need is healing. We need to be restored. And that's what grace does. It doesn't demand payback, but it heals and it restores us into relationship with God and with others. And that is how God is setting things right. You know, the Pharisees, they would say, no, no, first you've got to be like us to look like us, dress like us, and act like us, do the things we do, believe the things we believe, and then maybe after a while, we'll let you into our little God club. You know, maybe. But with God, with grace, everything's upside down. Grace says you're forgiven, you're welcomed, you're accepted right now. It's just offered to you. It's a gift. You you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's certainly not fair. In fact, it's profound unfairness. And that's why it was so difficult for me to begin to wrap my mind around grace. Because it just doesn't make any sense. It has to be experienced. And really, the only question with grace is your openness to it. This past summer... A lot of the women here and Dina, they they read through Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child. That's just such a good book. And he says something in this book that has just stuck with me for the past few years. He says, to define yourself as one radically beloved by God, that this is the true self. And every other identity, it's an illusion. And I think, I think that's what it means to have new life. And that's such a church phrase. But I think it means when we stop trusting in the masks that we've made and we start to trust in God's retelling of our stories through the lens of grace. And then we find our identity in being radically loved by this good God. And that's what I have to keep coming back to every day, sometimes multiple times a day. So I just want to wrap up. I want to wrap up with a few questions, and this is just what I've been sitting with this week. And first is, how do you picture God? And we all know what the Sunday school answer is, so I think you have to sit with this one for a while, and you have to really dig and think, maybe you're like me. Maybe you pictured him like the Pharisees. Or do you see Jesus 
And then next, are you open to grace? Are you really experiencing the grace of God in your life? And then let's, let's put those two things together. Let's talk about us as a church. As a community of faith, what kind of picture are we presenting of God? Is this a safe place? Are we letting grace pour into us and pour out? When people walk through the doors, can they take off their mask? Can they be authentic? Can they be vulnerable? Can they tell their stories? And will they be received with grace? And will people come and walk alongside of each other and trust in the work that God is doing? Let's pray. God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your grace. God, help us to be open to it. Please pour it into us so that it can pour out into our communities, God. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to invite the prayer team up. If, If you just need prayer this morning about anything, you want somebody to talk to you, we're invited and welcome to come up and meet with one of our prayer team members. And um, that's it. We we hope to see you all next week.